Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome all of you to Sunday morning Bible class called Pastor's Bible class here at St. Paul's. We welcome all who are here with us in the gymnasium. Those listening uh, in the greater St. Louis area on radio, KFUO 850 AM and worldwide online at kfuo.org. It's good to be back with you after a couple, uh, two Sundays actually, on vacation. I don't know if anybody noticed, but I was, I was gone. And uh, it's good, good to be back with you and, uh, and uh, joining you for a study of God's Word here this morning. As is usually the case, we're going to be looking at the lessons for next Sunday, which will be the Festival of Pentecost. We've just come from Ascension this last Thursday. And I had a, a great uh, worship service here. And uh, next Sunday, then, we'll be looking forward to celebrating Pentecost. And so we'll look at those lessons together. Prior to that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to come before you thanking and praising you for the sending of your Son, for his mission in our midst, voluntarily and willingly going to the cross, and taking with him there all of our sin. We thank you also for his resurrection and for the promise and the reality of a physical resurrection that awaits all of us on the last day when he returns. We thank you also for your word, your revelation to us. We pray that you'd be with us today, that your Holy Spirit would guide and bless our study of that word together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, Today we have what some might consider, at least at first blush, first looking at it, a rather strange combination of lessons, of scripture lessons for Pentecost. There is what you might expect, and that's the traditional account from the book of Acts, of actually what occurred on the day of Pentecost. But the Old Testament lesson for this day is God scrambling or confusing the languages as, as the people were building the Tower of Babel. Okay? So that might seem a little bit like an odd combination of lessons. And I would suggest to you that actually they do have something pretty, pretty uh, significant in mind. In the Tower of Babel, you've got the confusing of the languages so that people cannot understand one another and work together. And we'll see why God did that. That, at first, again, might sound a bit harsh on his part. What do you have at Pentecost? The exact opposite. You've got the Holy Spirit coming to the church and the disciples speaking in known languages so that all who are there can understand. Okay? So that's quite a contrast. You've got... You've got uh, non-understanding and confusion, purposely by God in the Old Testament, and you've got clear communication in known languages when the disciples are talking about the wonders of God at Pentecost. So there's kind of the connection. If we're wondering what, what in the world are these lessons doing together, grouped together, that's the combination, or at least that's what I would suggest to you. Let's take a look then, first of all, at Genesis 11, and just to kind of regroup here, we've had, of course, in the book of Genesis already, we've had the creation of the world by God. We've had the fall into sin. We've had the first promise of a Savior in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we've had population going on after Genesis 3, and we've had a tremendous um, falling into more and more and more sin by God's creation so that there is that one verse, I believe it's in Genesis 7, where God laments that he had made man. That's a rather sad verse, isn't it? And then you have the flood, then Noah the flood in, in Genesis 8. And then uh, after that, you have the aftermath of the flood then. And God, remember, making a promise connected to a rainbow that he will never again uh, uh, bring judgment uh, in this same way with the water. And now, what we have basically are the descendants of Noah going on, okay? Because everybody else was wiped out except Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, so the eight people and the animals on the ark. Everything else 
has been lost in judgment. And so that's just a couple of chapters earlier, and now we're in Genesis chapter 11. Um, if you look, and we won't take the time now to look uh, in any great detail, but Genesis 10 is, to some people, might seem like a rather boring chapter because it lists all the descendants and where they went. And in particular, you have the descendants of, of uh, Noah's son, Ham, that include Canaan. And from Canaan came all the Canaanites, who were such a thorn in the side of God's people uh, for their whole existence in the Old Testament, actually. And you also have the descendants of Shem, uh, another of Noah's sons, through whom God brought the promised Savior later on, through that line, okay? And you have Japheth also and his descendants. And not that they were unimportant, but those, uh, compared to those other two, those other two lines are quite important in the history of God's people. And uh, you've got several spots in Genesis chapter 10 where it talks about they were spread out. And you can actually go online and look at a map of uh, how they spread. And each of these three lines spread out from there and populated the earth from that point. If we were in a smaller class and I could uh, show you a picture, I would. But uh, in the gym here, it doesn't work uh, quite so well. All right. So that's kind of a backdrop of where we are at. And now we're looking at chapter 11, which goes and actually explains how it is that in chapter 10, all these descendants are spread out and they've got different languages. Um, for example, in verse 5 of chapter 10, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Verse 20 says the same thing about a different clan, and verse 31 about a different clan. Now in Genesis 11, we're finding out how is it that they got their own language. How did this actually happen? Okay. So with that, let's take a look, starting at verse 1 in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth, well, that's all the descendants of Noah at this point, right? All the descendants of Noah uh, had one language. In the original language, it actually says had one lip, uh, which we don't think they're talking about the physical lip there. We think that's a, a way of saying all had one language. And, and we would expect that, wouldn't we? They're all descendants of Noah, and we would expect they all have one language. Communication is easy, and there's no problem. Uh, and the same words. Verse 2, And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Uh, this is in the, sort of the area where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers come together. The area that later became Babylon is the area that we think this is. And they've moved from the east, uh, from Ararat, uh, into this valley now, which was a very fertile valley, a good place. Okay and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Uh, this area had a lot of clay in the soil. I think maybe a little bit like St. Louis. I'm not sure. <laughs> we got a lot of clay here too. Uh, and it was good for making bricks. Okay. But they had to fire the bricks to make them, you know, solid. And that uh, bitumen is like a tarry uh, oil of, of coal that they would use as mortar to stick the bricks together when they're building. Okay? So these people are united in this effort to, to build. Okay? And they said, now look at verse 4 here. What's the motivation? Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower from the top in the with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed uh, over the face of the whole earth okay so let's make a tower up to the heavens so what are they trying to do by that do you think approach god right we'll we'll get to god we're going to build this tower, but what's their motivation? Did you catch what their motivation is? Was it to, we're going to build this, this tower to the glory of God and to his name. What, what's the motivation? 
make a name for ourselves. Yeah, and settle there. This is an exact opposition to what God had told them to do earlier in Genesis 9, verse 1, which is to spread out, populate the earth, and inhabit the earth. They want to settle here in this real garden spot, and they want to build a tower up to God and make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed, as God had asked them to do. You know, so what we would say, can't you just see in this an arrogance on the part of God's people? Let's build this beautiful structure and make a name for ourselves. And let's stop and think about that. Um, what are some ways that people today in our world try to make a name for themselves instead of to the glory of God? Can you think of any ways that people might do that today? What do you think? How do people do that? Okay. Okay, any endeavor, any field where they're trying to... Okay, sports. Um, you, know, you, you know you've really made it in terms of name recognition when you're referred to publicly by only one name, right? Like Oprah, right? I say Oprah, everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? Uh, uh, what's another one? I guess uh, some years ago, uh, OJ, right? I guess that's two, two letters, but everybody knew who you were talking about? Give a large sum of money, and for charity, not that that's bad in and of itself, but if the motivation is so that I get recognized as the, as the, the person who did this great work for everybody else, okay? What, what's that? Rockefeller, yeah, yeah, one, one name. And, you know, when you stop and think about it, it is always the nature of sin, isn't it, to turn us in on ourselves and to make ourselves the focal point. Right? Uh, right back from the first, very first sin, right? Satan says to Eve, in the day you eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. Right? And knowing the, knowing the difference between good and evil, and there was a part of that that was true, the second half. Yeah, they're going to know the difference, all right? <laughs> Not in a good way. And uh, so we are always, by sin, we are always tempted to turn the focus on ourselves and call attention to ourselves and make sure everybody else knows about us and that we get our proper due and our proper uh, notoriety amongst people. Now let's ask the question, can Christian congregations, can Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations fall victim to this same temptation to make a name for ourselves? How so? Oh, yeah, yeah, Pastor So-and-So's church, you know. I think I've mentioned this before in this class. I was, I, I was corrected, and rightly so, I, although it's kind of a technicality. I was talking to another uh, person about a particular church, and I said, oh, that's Pastor So-and-So's church. And this person corrected me and said, well, actually, it's God's church, and he's the pastor there. And I said, yeah, you're right, you're right. Okay, technically, that's true, very true. Yeah, so pastors can fall victim to this, very much so, right, that... Uh, in terms of notoriety, make sure everybody knows about you, and, and so on. That's a temptation. Any other ways? All right, the music church known. And so the idea is not so much that we give glory to God through that music, but everybody knows that we are the music church, right? Uh, don't we have another one about 100 feet from here? big hole in the ground right now with some boards sticking up, right? I always say it's the most expensive swimming pool in St. Louis so far. But, uh, it, you know, we could build a new school, and school building, which we are, and we could say, on the one hand, we could say that is dedicated to the glory of God and to the instruction of his children, telling the next generation the wonders he has done. Or we're tempted at times to think, well, now we'll have a school that's better than school XYZ, right? And uh, so there's always that temptation, see, to make a name for ourselves and to turn things in on ourselves 
instead of the name that is above every name, right? As Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and all confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. So uh, what happened here is you see again, people haven't changed uh, way back post-Noah all the way to today, and that's because sin hasn't changed. It's always going to turn itself yeah, turn us in on ourselves, away from God, away from one another. Okay, So we just kind of always know that. So that's what they were after. Make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed, lest we actually have happened what God has asked us to do. Right. So you see there, again, uh, this tower is going to be a monument to their own arrogance and to their own disobedience, really, of what God has asked them to do. Now, and now verse 5, we don't know if this is intended humor or not, but look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. You catch the little humor there? They're, they're working. They're going to build this huge structure. It's going to be so impressive. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And what does God have to do to see it? Come down. <laughs> And uh, again, we don't know if that's just a manner of speaking, but it certainly gets across the point that man's greatest uh, monuments and greatest achievements are but a pittance compared to the power and glory and majesty of God, right? That if we think we're ever going to approach God in terms of his glory and majesty, no. Okay? So, uh, and then verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, which they were, and they all have one language, which they did, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they proposed uh, to do will now be impossible for them. Well, we stop and ask the question, what's wrong with that? What, what is God unhappy with here? They're all one people, they're all one language. Nothing that they propose to do will be out of their ability to, to reach or to do. So what's, what's God's problem with that? Okay, they're not populating the earth, they're not spreading out like he had said. They're choosing to stay right in one place. But it's not only, it's, it's whatever they propose to do for, for their own. Yeah, for, gonna, it's going to sink further and further and further into this self-centered uh, existence, which uh, they are not perceiving, apparently, at this point, is a problem for them. And so this is what God is upset about or is unhappy about, that it's not that God is somehow not happy with achievement on this earth, but what's the, what's the motivation for that? What's going to be the result of that? And so what happens here now, verse 7, come let us go down, maybe a reference to the Trinity there, or maybe just the, the royal way of speaking. Let us, notice again, go down. <laughs> and there confuse their language. The word confuse in Hebrew is babel. And we have the word babbling, I guess, is a kind of a derivative perhaps of that in, in uh, slang. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Uh, they were so confused, their language was so confused, that they did not even stay and continue that endeavor. They were totally frustrated. There's been a lot written about this, and I won't uh, go into great detail. We just don't have the time. But what did God actually do here? There is the thinking that he actually changed the thinking of the people and their understanding of communication here so that they did not have one language any longer but had many, many different languages, throwing everything that they thought they were so, uh, you know, uh, going, to, going to do into total confusion and they dispersed, as God had wanted them to do in the first place, and didn't build that any longer. Uh, we don't think God did anything physically to their lips or to their mouth. 
but it was something in their thought process and in their actual thinking and way of communicating. And many scholars think that whatever that one language was that we had, that we've lost it, that it no longer exists. Uh, there are some people who think that it was Hebrew, and that's simply because that's what Moses wrote, well, that's what the Old Testament is written in, but not necessarily so. So it's really, when you stop and think about it, it's really quite profound what God did there. And again, the reason why he did it was for mankind's own good, that the focus would be brought back, hopefully, to God and not remaining on themselves. And ever since this day now, we have had many, many different languages around the face of the earth. There's an old uh, German commentator named Kyle, and I think he's uh, 19th century, actually. <clears throat> he did some calculation as to how many people uh, were on the face of the earth around this time. And his numbers, he, he took what we had in Genesis 10, and he assumed that each of the family units had eight children, which is, I guess, about average for that time. And he, his calculations were that about this time there would be about 30,000 people following the flood at, uh, by this time, okay? So you think about that, that's not even enough to fill Bush Stadium, right? It's about two-thirds full of Bush Stadium. That's the number of people we're talking about at this time. Now, eventually, of course, when they're dispersed, they're going to be continuing to be fruitful and multiply, and, and things will grow from there. But the languages now have been confused, okay? So verse 9, therefore, its name is called Babel or Babel, and again, that's from the Hebrew word confused, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So again, it's what God had originally intended and commanded them to do. He brings about through that, that confusion. Okay? Now again, contrast this with what God's going to do at Pentecost, where now Christ has ascended and is gone, and the Holy Spirit is going to come as Christ promised he would, and we're going to now have, instead of confused communication, we're going to have perfect communication in the known languages that are there. And that communication is not going to be focused on man and all of his accomplishments. It's going to be focused on communicating the wonders that God has done. And that, again, is a desire God has to have all people saved. It will be in all the known languages. So what we've got at Pentecost is sort of the reversal of what happened here in Genesis chapter 11. Okay? All right, let me stop here for a moment before we move on to the Pentecost account. Any, just over the Genesis account, though, any uh, questions or comments? Huh? Mm. Yeah, the, the question was, at this time now, in the Genesis account, we've got so many languages that would not know much, at least, about God. I think that we would still say, though, through Noah and his sons, we hoped that there was some you know, knowledge of God. Yeah, and then over time, of course, you see what happens when God's people are, in, are in the, even in the promised land. The Canaanites, over time, obviously take on other gods and start worshiping them and God's people. Even though God told them to wipe out everybody, they don't do it when they come into the land, and they start worshiping the false gods. So yeah, over time, they went away from the one true God and started worshiping the false gods of, that they basically are man-made gods that they made up in the land of Canaan. And you get that whole culture that developed, and it was a problem for God's people. And so we're saying again, the descendants of Ham, one of, one of Noah's sons, produced Canaan and Canaanites, and Shem, then, is the line that eventually would produce the Savior, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Right.
Yeah, okay, good question. Uh, is this the only time we know of where language was either confused or made more clear? And uh, I guess I would say yes amongst people on the face of this earth. That's the only time I'm, I can think of off the top of my head. But remember when Paul has the vision and goes up to the seventh heaven, and oh, and, and we have the, the account also, uh, he, he saw things that words cannot express, and then we have also the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings and sighs, uh, too, too, again, too deep for, you get the impression it's a whole nother means of communicating in God's realm, yeah, which we obviously haven't experienced yet, yeah. Yeah, as far as people are concerned, and you're, you're correct in saying that there's one thing between the languages being confused and the disciples just not understanding what, they, they know the meaning of the words, but they can't figure out the meaning of what's going on yet, you know. Even, it's frustrating, even in, the, in Acts 1, you know, right before Jesus ascends, what's the question the disciples ask? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, you know? In other words, is this the time now we're going to set up things here? And you think, come on. Where have you guys been? So yeah, that, but there's a difference between that and the actual language itself being either confused or made clear. Okay? Anything else on the Genesis account? All right, let's go on then to read the actual account then in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, uh, many people uh, think that Pentecost is just a Christian festival or a Christian holy day, and it is certainly that, but it was a long-time festival prior to the first Christian Pentecost. It was a festival that goes all the way back into the Old Testament, and this is kind of technical, but it was the 50th, so the Penta, the 50th day after the presentation of the first sheaf of barley from the barley harvest. Okay. Or uh, it's the 50th day from the first Sunday after the Passover. So the Passover came, you had the Sabbath the next day, and 50 days after that was when they traditionally held the Feast of Pentecost each year. The Jews did throughout the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. And so Pentecost was primarily a harvest festival in which the first fruits of the harvest were given to God, were offered to God, okay? So by first fruits, what, what are we saying as people when we offer the first fruits? Let's say you got a whole field of wheat out there, and the first 10% of it you take off and you bring to the temple, in the, in, in the case of the Old Testament, around Christ's time, and you offer it there to God. What are you saying by that action? It trusts that, first of all, it, you're saying what? I, I'm recognizing that this is a gift from God, right? That this, that this field of wheat out here and all of it is from God. And secondly, I have full faith and confidence that just as he provided this first 10%, there's a whole lot more to come out there, right? And so this was the, the idea behind this, and I would suggest that there's a good stewardship principle there for all of us in this day and age as well, right? What do we give to God? The first and best, or at the end of the month, if we got a little bit left over, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll give some of that. See, there's a whole different mindset there that uh, God's people practiced uh, annually when it came to their livelihood, which was their, their agriculture and, and the harvest that they would have. So that's what this really was about. Later on in its existence, it became also a time, because it fell around the same time of the year, to remember and celebrate God's giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. So you had a lot of things running together uh, in this festival of Pentecost. And that's why there were so many Jews in Jerusalem on this 50th day after Easter, the Sunday after the Passover, right? after the Sabbath of the Passover. That's why they're all there. And that's why they came from all parts of the known world at that time, because the temple was in Jerusalem. They only had synagogues out in all these other cities and territories, and they would come to Jerusalem in order to make their offering at Pentecost. 
uh, Jews would not come, uh, would not be able to come. Not all Jews would be able to come every year, but it was always a something that you would strive to do. Uh, and uh, when it came to the Passover, each male Jew was to come to Jerusalem at least once in their lifetime to celebrate the Passover. But you also, from all over the known world at that time, Jews would come. And so that sets the stage now. They're all in Jerusalem at this time. So, let's, after all that, let's go to verse 1 here of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they... Now, who's the they? We think with one of two things. It's either the 12 disciples, and remember... Uh, who's the new the new disciple? Who's the newest disciple at this point? Just read about it today. Matthias, right? A lot cast lots, and a lot fell to him. So it's either the twelve or it's the bigger group. Also, uh, we saw today also in the second lesson about a hundred and or in the first lesson rather about hundred and twenty, uh, roughly at that time. They were all together in one place, and the in one place where were they? Let's take a look. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So where are they? In a house? There's two there's two there's speculation, two different ways on this. One is that they're in a an actual house, as as it says there, and if they're in a house what room do you think they might be in? The upper room is the speculation, where they, where they celebrated the Lord's Supper, where Christ initiated the Lord's Supper, and where it seems they were, they were meeting there, remember, on Easter evening, and then a week later, behind closed doors. That's one speculation, that it's 50 days after now, they're still in that house, in that upper room. The other speculation is Luke, in, in a number of places, uses that word house to describe the house of God or the temple. And the reason that some like that explanation is that Peter is going to preach a sermon and how many men are going to be are going to be baptized and brought to faith that day? 3000. Pretty hard to do that in a house, isn't it? So if it was in a in a smaller house like the upper room, the speculation is that then between this rushing wind and the flames we'll see in a moment between that and the sermon peter and the others went to the temple the other speculation is that when luke says house here he's actually referring to the temple as i said there are a number of places where he uses the word house to refer to the house of god or the, or the temple itself we don't know for sure and i guess in the end it doesn't make all that much difference but it's just interesting perhaps to speculate so uh, so we've got the sound of this rushing wind. Now in the Old Testament, we won't look at it, but Ezekiel 37, you got the, that's the dry bones out in the wilderness, and Ezekiel is commanded by God to prophesy to the Spirit, or prophesy to the wind. So there's an association there. Jesus, in John chapter 3, talks about the Spirit and makes a comparison with the wind that it comes and goes and you do not know from whence it comes so it is with the spirit of god john 3 verse 8 so that in the in the scriptures we do have some associations of the spirit with wind and breath okay and verse 3 and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them so things that looked like tongues of fire. Now notice, does it, do we get a description of where these tongues actually rested on them? What body part? No, it doesn't say. Okay? And I, I just did that because we, we always see these depictions in paintings that it's either on their shoulder or on their head. We don't know for sure. And again, that's not important. Uh, where uh, can you think of a time in the Old Testament where fire is connected with God and the divine? The burning bush with Moses in Exodus chapter three, right? The bush that is on fire and is not consumed, and it's clear that God is speaking to Moses from the midst of that burning bush. And maybe one other one that uh, might be easy to think of. 
Pil the pillar of fire, right? When they are in the wilderness and at night, remember, God is there in a form of a pillar of fire and in the day a pillar of cloud, uh, leading and assuring his people that he is with them. So you've got a lot going on here. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of get this idea that this is a divine appearance. And in this case, it's going to be the Spirit. And notice there, uh, verse 4, and they were all... Well, of course, is this the 12 or this 120? I, we don't know. All filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So notice this is a gift of the Spirit. It is not something that they cultivated themselves or tried to produce on their own. In fact, these men, as we're going to see later, are mere Galileans, some fishermen and, and you know, not... not uh, very learned, educated men, and they're going to be speaking in known languages here because these languages are going to be understood by all these people who are gathered in Jerusalem to be their own language, and they never studied this language. So this is totally a miracle brought about by God, and as I say, the exact opposite of what happens at the Tower of Babel. Um, now, Verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, that sounds familiar. That's exactly what God's mission is, right? The Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Verse 6, and at this sound, now we think the sound refers back to them speaking in the other known languages, not necessarily to the wind that had come but to them speaking in all these other known languages. So, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So again, these are known languages at that time. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished. You get, you get the picture, Luke is just trying to convey to us how uh, people were just dumbfounded. They, didn't, they had no idea how this could possibly be. They were uh, astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans, from the area of Galilee? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Uh, Mesopotamia would be that area... Uh, where we talked about uh, Babel being in. Isn't it kind of ironic that they're, they're mentioned here as being present here now? Um, let's see, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors, notice here, visitors from Rome. And notice that the visitors from Rome are both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were people who were converted to Judaism. They were not Jews by birth, but they were Gentiles who were converted to Judaism. And they had an actual washing ceremony that they went through to make them ceremonially clean. And so they were converts. So these, these, all these people were in Jerusalem for this. And Cretans, from the island of Crete, and Arabians, and here's the thing, we hear them telling in our own tongues, notice here, the mighty works of God. Again, what a contrast, right? In, in Genesis 11, it's let's build something so we can make a name for ourselves. And in Acts 2, they're talking not about themselves, but about the mighty works of God. Okay? Again, a lesson for us as, as any congregation. Our, our role is not to trumpet ourselves and how great we are but to draw attention and talk about the mighty works of God, most especially on the cross and the empty tomb. So verse 22, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So see, here is proof that we actually had Lutherans there uh, in Jerusalem. They asked the good Lutheran question, What does this mean? Okay? And now look, look, look at the explanation. But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So what's the implication? They're just, they're just drunk. Now, when you stop and think about that, first of all, to be able to speak in another language that you've never studied before, 
I don't think is a normal reaction to being intoxicated, right? I have not observed that before or ever heard of that. And secondly, you know, you wonder why were they saying that they'd just been drinking a lot of the new wine? Remember, what was this festival for? The first of the harvest. So the new grapes that would have been harvested and offered, they thought maybe these guys got into it and, and were sampling some of the new wine, right? And uh, so just trying, notice here, just trying to explain away uh, what was happening there. They're, they're grappling with this. How can this possibly be? All right, so then Peter's going to bring them back to their senses, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, so here we get it narrowed down to the 12. That's why some think that all the way along it's just been the 12, not the bigger group, 120. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, in other words, all the visitors as well, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only, if we take 6 a.m. as the you know, sunrise, it's only about 9 in the morning, roughly, something like that. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now, Peter is going to say, this is actually prophecy coming true. This is what Joel spoke of in Joel chapter 2, and it's verses 28 through 32 of Joel 2. Peter is saying, this is now being fulfilled right here in your midst. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Are we living in the last days? When did the last days begin? Yeah, the resurrection, ascension of Christ, uh, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, right in that time. We are living now in what's called the New Testament era, and many times is referred to as the latter days or the last days. And, of course, we don't know uh, exactly when, uh, as Pastor Thompson uh, preached in his excellent sermon this morning, when Christ will come among us. Uh, in, in the second coming, that's not for us to know, intentionally so, but we do believe we are living uh, in, in what is called the, the latter days, or the last days. And notice there, I will pour out, God says, my spirit on whom? All flesh. You know, repeatedly through the Old Testament, we see this message that God's salvation is for all people. Uh, you know, even when the temple is dedicated, and a prayer at the dedication of the temple, that when the foreigner comes and prays to you, you hear, hear his prayer. And this has always been God's intent. Not that it's a, an exclusive club that is saved, but all human beings. He's pouring out his spirit on all human beings. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And remember, prophecy is not just predicting the future, but is proclaiming the word of God. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament did a lot more of that than they did actually making predictions about the future. They did that, certainly, but a lot more of their content was just preaching and teaching the Word of God to the people of God at that time. So they shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and God certainly has communicated uh, with his people through that, through visions. We think of uh, Cornelius, for example, in the book of Acts, a little bit later on. Uh, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, and when you think about it, all Christians are servants or bond servants, right, of Christ. And uh, now here's some precursors to Christ's return. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. So there are even these signs in the creation. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now, can you think of a time when the sun was already turned to darkness? Not that many, not that uh, much uh, in the past at this point. At the crucifixion, right? From uh, noon, roughly noon until three, there was darkness over the face of the earth for those three hours. Uh, the last three hours of the sixth, that Christ was, was there on the cross. So in one sense, you could say that was already fulfilled. Uh, what else happened at that point to the earth? Shook, right? The graves of some were opened, and 
And uh, some who had been dead were up and alive and walking around in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? God demonstrating again the, the very clearly and without mistake that this is an incredible thing that's happening outside of Jerusalem here on this day. Okay? Uh, notice then before, this is all going to happen, before the day of the Lord comes or his return, that great and magnificent day. And then notice here how it ends with a word of promise. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there's a word of assurance. Even though all these scary things are going to happen, even in the creation uh, before he returns, that Peter leaves us with that assurance here that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we pray that God you know, works through us and through the message we proclaim so that more and more people might call upon the name of the Lord uh, for their own salvation. Okay? And uh, we, uh, you know, there's a lot more to this, of course, and Peter goes on and preaches about Christ as the Messiah. The uh, Jews are convicted to the heart, and, and they're cut to the heart, and they say, brothers, what must we do? And then you have Acts 2.38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? And 3,000 are baptized that day. By the way, that's one of the, uh, it's not a direct uh, argument, but it's one of the reasons we believe that uh, baptism took place not just by immersion. You got 3,000 people baptized that one day. We think they were probably pouring or sprinkling water, not... Uh, we don't know where they would go to immerse every uh, 3,000 at that point. Okay? That's not the main point, but that's the little side thing. All right. Uh, let me stop there for a moment. Any uh, comments, questions on the actual Pentecost account? We'll be looking at this next Sunday. All right. Let's go finish up then uh, with the gospel lesson for next Sunday. And this is going to be actually Jesus with his disciples here predicting that the Holy Spirit is going to be sent, is going to come to them. This is right before uh, his, he's going to be dying on the cross, not long after these words are uttered. So um, here in verse 23, oh, uh, Jesus answered him. Who is the him here? It's the Judas, not the Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas, who asks him the question, Lord, how are you going to manifest yourself to us? How are you going to make yourself known to us? And Jesus answered him, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What does Jesus connect loving him with here? This is kind of important for us as word and sacrament Lutherans. What does Jesus connect the loving of him, and the loving of the Father for that matter, with faith and keeping his word his word and notice there if anyone loves me he will keep my word now what does it mean to keep his word do you think does that mean we we don't throw it away we keep it i guess that's kind of elementary but there might be a little more to it than that we not only keep it what does that actually mean when we keep his word we live and learn it, spread it, exactly. Remember, Luther, uh, hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it, right? In the explanation of the third uh, commandment, right? And so it's that loving of his word. And that's why you're here, I hope, in Bible class today. Loving his word and his instruction to us. You see that word and he are intimately connected, aren't they? As is the Father. It's his word to us, his communication to us, through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And so here Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Okay? So we hold that word to be the sacred word of God to us in all its parts that he has revealed to us. And we teach that word. We, with the help of God, align our lives with that word. If we see areas where our life is not in conformity to that word, we ask God's help in, in changing our life and bringing it into conformity with that word. That's what keeping that word is. It's the basis for all that we teach and do. 
All right, verse 24, the opposite here. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And we, of course, see a lot of people today who do not, uh, in his own words, keep his words, right? They don't hold them as anything sacred. They don't even want to hear it, uh, want anything to do with it, and certainly don't want to conform their lives to what it says. So we certainly see both sides around us in this world. These things, uh, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So what's implied in that last phrase, while I am still with you? He's not going to be with them in the future at some point. I mean, they don't know yet. They don't have all the details. But while I am still with you, and you've got to wonder, you know, are they getting anxious at this point when he's talking about not being with them anymore? But, verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, number one, teach you all things, number two, bring to your, mind, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That word helper, some other translations have the word comforter there. It is in Greek, it is the word paraclete. It's the one who is called, it's literally, a paraclete was somebody in, in the legal court system who when you, were, when you were on trial would literally stand next to you. Someone called to your side to help you so that you don't stand alone. So it's your helper or your comforter. It's, hard, it's a hard thing to translate. But isn't the Holy Spirit just like that for us? He is the one who is called to our side to stand with us in this world. And his only job is not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. He will bear witness to me, Jesus says uh, a little bit later on. Okay? And so the, that's the one now who is going to be sent. So Jesus intimates that he's going to go, but they're not going to be alone. The helper, the paraclete, is going to be sent. And notice what he's going to do. Teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And boy, you read what uh, Peter does here later on in this sermon. You read later on what Peter and what Paul do in their letters, in their preaching, and you can see the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, teaching them not just a couple things, but all things, and burning to their remembrance what Jesus had said. 27, these are special words uh, for all of us. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Oh, better say a few words about this. First of all, the peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give. Notice it's a gift. It's not something, again, we earn or work toward receiving. It's a gift from God. I give it to you. Does this peace mean that we have a life free of any problems, or concerns, or even tragedies as Christians. Is that what that peace means? It's the absence of any problems in life. No. If you think about it, if that were the case, how many people would want to be Christians? When everybody would want to be a Christian for all the wrong reasons, right? For, again, for serving self, so that I can have an easy life. No. It, in fact, when you look around, sometimes Christians appear to have more problems and, and tragedies in life than, than some non-believers, some atheists do. But it's that in the midst of all of this, we have a calm or a sense of confidence that can only come from knowing that we have a right relationship with God, that our sins are forgiven, that God is favorably disposed toward us, and his favor is upon us. No matter what's going on out there in the world, or more intimately in our own life, that's something that no one can take from us. And that's that peace that the world cannot give. It's not, a it's not enforced with military troops, or with you know, all kinds of tanks and guns and so on. 
It's a peace, an inner peace, that only Christ can give. And that's a gift that's given to us. Nothing we need to do, just receive it, okay? So that those are special words for us, uh, certainly. And uh, now, uh, the, the one that's a little bit, uh, to some people, controversial, very end of verse 28, for the Father is greater than I. Whoa! I thought... I thought we worshiped the triune God, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all co-equal in majesty and glory and so on. Well, how can Jesus say, Father is greater than I? That sounds like they're kind of subordination of the Son toward the Father. And uh, as you might think, we have an answer for this. Uh, it is that according to his human nature, he certainly is at this point lesser than the Father, and he submits to the will of the Father. And it, it, we won't, uh, it, it, next time you're in church, uh, take a look at that Athanasian Creed, and you'll find a line in there that says, equal with the Father according to his divinity, lesser than the Father with respect to his humanity. Okay? Because he was true man. He had all the shortcomings except for sin of the human flesh. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he cried. He, you know, had all those things. So with respect to his humanity, he is less than the Father. But with respect to his divinity, they are co-equal, okay? Those are the things that seminarians spend hours reading about. We'll ask Vicar Wade about that. All right, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Who's the ruler of this world? The devil, Satan, yeah. He has, this is a great line, he has no claim on me. Literally in the, in the original language it says, he has nothing on me. Okay, he, has, he's no, he can't claim anything from me. Okay, it's, it's a great line. Uh, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that, what's the purpose? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Okay. So that ends up uh, the gospel lesson for next week. And again, Jesus, you see the Old Testament lesson, the confusion of the languages at Babel. You see the uh, Acts account at Pentecost, the burning together of perfect communication again when it comes to declaring the wonders of God. And the gospel lesson, you've got Jesus predicting that the comforter, the paraclete, the helper is going to be coming. And he uh, certainly did on the day of Pentecost. Now. One little quick comment. Does this mean that uh, the Holy Spirit was never present and never operated before Pentecost? Is Pentecost his first time on the scene? No. No, because nobody could have believed anything. They could have not, in the Old Testament, could even have believed the promises about the coming Savior. Uh, somebody's going to talk about this a little bit next week from the pulpit, that uh, we are born with an inability to understand the things of God, no matter what language they're spoken in. So the Spirit was certainly active prior to this. But here, the Spirit is coming in a miraculous, demonstrable way so that all of those Jews who were there for the Pentecost festival, what are they going to do? Take off and go back to their homeland. And when they get back home, you think they're going to just, oh, ho-hum. No, they're going to be telling everybody they see. You wouldn't believe what happened in Jerusalem and about Jesus. And some of them are going to go back home as baptized Christians. 3,000 in total. We don't know how many of those were visitors. So you're going to see the, the church spreading before Peter and Paul ever get out of Jerusalem. Now Paul's out, Saul's out there already persecuting, but I mean as, a, as a, an apostle. Okay? It's all, God's already at work doing the, the work of the church himself before they even, they even get it straight and get on to their mission. Okay? All right, so that's for next week. Let's close in. We're out of time. Let's close with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.